represent God interpret his word. And so I pray that the Lord will, will give me and all of us wisdom in this matter. And I've been reading the book of Genesis lately, and in th- this time, and every time I read the Bible, it's a different, a new and different book for me. I'm constantly amazed, like, I never saw that before. And even though I've read, read the whole thing through. And so it's always exciting for me to read it, because I think the Lord reveals new insights to you with each passing day. And the, the thing that struck me in this reading is that how frequently God blessed Abraham, guided him, instructed him, protected him, got him out of difficulties of his own making, protected his wife in, spe- in spite of his, his uh, poor judgment sometimes. And so, you know, constantly God's protecting, rescuing, helping, guiding Abraham. And the same with Isaac and Jacob following him. So there's a tremendous number of blessings to be harvested in reading the book of Genesis. And I believe that God not only guided and blessed and protected Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but that message is the same for all of us. I believe that he guides and protects and blesses each and every one of us and rescues us from difficulties of our own making. And as I was reading through this, I was thinking about, you know, what else does God do besides bless us and protect us? And I want to talk about blessings a little bit more later, but I was thinking about what are the things that make us have a relationship with God. And so I sat down this morning and I wrote out what I call our guiding assumptions as Seventh-day Adventists. Now, I'm not a theologian, and I'm sure that the theologians would be appalled at my all-too-brief and, in some ways, inaccurate list. But as I see it, this is my basic assumptions about our faith as Seventh-day Adventists. And the Apostle Paul tells us that we should be ready at any time to give an explanation and a reason for our faith. And so I'm, I'm sort of doing that now. I'm trying to explain why I believe what I do and, in a sense, why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And number one, and I'm going to go through this list really quickly, and, and each one of these is a sermon in themselves. But let me just go through this list. The first one is that God loves us. That's an assumption that I make about our faith that we make as Seventh-day Adventists. And I also believe that God has an individualized plan for each and every one of us. Now, we have a friend, Mal and I have a friend named Verlin Benson, and when he was in college at Andrews University, his sociology teacher said, you know, uh, God doesn't really interfere or concern himself with our day-to-day lives. He just set up the universe and um, stepped back, and it's kind of running, and but he doesn't individually uh, interfere with us. He lets us make our own decisions and stuff. Uh, For example, he wouldn't, for example, choose your spouse, your wife, or who your husband's going to be. You know, that's entirely up to you. And Verlin raised his hand and said, well, but but I think God does guide us day by day. And, And the instructor goes, 
Oh, come on, Berlin. I mean, what if your intended wife is in Africa right now and you're here in the United States? How on earth are you going to meet her and get to know her? And, you know, I mean, come on, Berlin. I mean, this is ju it's just not realistic. So that afternoon after, or the following Sabbath, uh, he, after church, there was a couple that invited them to have lunch with him. And so he had lunch with them, and they were talking, and they were former missionaries, and they'd been, coincidentally, missionaries in Africa. And they knew people in Africa. And there was this young nurse there who was working as a missionary volunteer for a year, and um, they knew, knew this young woman. And they said, Verlin, you know, this young woman is there all by herself, and, and um, she's far from home, and, you know, she'd really like someone to write to her just so, would you be willing to write a letter to her? And Verlin goes, sure. So he writes this letter, and they start exchanging letters, and then she comes back to Andrews and finishes her schooling there, and they get to be friends, and they get to be better friends. And finally one day, you know, Finally, one day, he says to her, now she was from the state of Washington, far away from Andrews University, you know, must be 2,000 miles away. And he says to her one day, I'd like to, s I'd like to meet your father. There's something I'd I want to discuss with him. She goes, oh, really? <laughs> you know, and, and, but she knew what it was, you know, and so <laughs> she calls her father and says, Father, there's someone who wants to meet you. And so he goes, he, he says, okay, whatever. And he flies to Washington, rents a car, drives out to their ranch out in the country. And um, as he gets there, the father is standing around and he's got this backhoe, this big John Deere tractor with a backhoe on it that he's renting for $200 a day. This was 20 years ago. It'd probably be $40 or $400 a day now. But he's rented this backhoe tractor, and the driver, the, he hired another guy to drive the tractor. The driver was sick. And the father is just standing there, and he's trying to dig irrigation trenches so he can water his farm with, with underground irrigation lines because it freezes in the winter there. So you have to put all the pipes underground. So he's going... Verlin gets out of the car and he goes, hi, I'm Verlin Benson. And he goes, yeah, my daughter told me about you. And then he turns away and he's looking at the tractor and trying to figure out what to do. And, uh, and Verlin goes, well, what's going on here? And he goes, well, I rented this tractor for $200 a day and the driver's sick and I don't know what to do. And Verlin goes, I know, I know how to drive that tractor. I worked at John Deere for about five years. I helped design this tractor. I used to have to go out in the back and drive it around to see how it worked because we designed it. He says, I know. And the guy goes, the father goes, you know how to drive this tractor? He goes, yeah. So Verlin jumps in and fires it up and spins it around and starts digging trenches down, you know, six feet with this backhoe. And in two days, he got all the trenches dug for the father and... Afterwards, they sit down for dinner, and the father says, so what is it that you wanted to talk to me about? And <laughs> he says, well, sir, I, I would, um, 
I'd like to marry your daughter. And the father goes, and why would I give her to anyone else? Because, you know, it's like the Lord had, had set up this whole thing so that Verlin could look good in, her, in the father's eyes. You know, he has this problem. Nobody can solve it. Verlin goes in, solves the problem. And the father's happy and says, well, I think this will make a good husband for my daughter. Now, what was kind of ironic about this whole story is that the sociology teacher had said, well, what if you're the, the, the wife that, you're, that the Lord has picked out for you is, is 6,000 miles away? How are you going to meet her? How are you going to get to know? And, but that's exactly what happened. The wife was 6,000 miles away, and Verlin did meet her and get to know her better, and they got married, and they had two they have uh, two wonderful children, and one, one of the children became a nurse, and the other became, I don't know what he did in college, but he was a master violinist by the time he was 16 years old. He's an incredible violinist. He actually was asked to go to Russia, and uh, he used to go travel with, I think it, it is written in other people and play violin. And the Russians love this kid because you know, I guess they like music a lot. So he was really popular with them. But God, I believe God individually guides our lives. Now, when he guides our lives, we, for the most part, behave like Jonah. Oh, no, I don't want to go to Nineveh. You know, we have a better plan. I think if you read through the Bible over and over again, when God asks someone to do something, as he asked the people of Israel, they have a better plan. They want to do something else. And that's kind of the way it is with us, and I'm afraid it's the way it is with me. I mean, when I graduated from college, I had a recruiter ask me, so, is there anywhere you don't want to live for the rest of your life? And I said, yes, Southern California. Well, here I am. <laughs> and so the Lord has a, he has a wonderful sense of humor, I think, and, but he has, a, he has an individual plan for our lives. And that's really good because it's so much better than our plan for ourselves. Beyond that, he has a purpose for our lives, which is part of his, his plan, his big picture. So we are like members of an orchestra in our lives. And as in an orchestra, you have the violins and the cellos and the, and the flutes and the drums and all the other instruments and the tubas. And each person has to play their part, or otherwise, it's just chaos. I mean, it sounds like an orchestra tuning up. Everybody's playing different notes, and it's just, it's terrible. I actually heard a um, performance by an orchestra that was playing two different melodies. They took the same melody, and half the orchestra started playing it faster, and the other half played it slower. And it was, it was, um, Peter Sheckley, I think is his name. He's a musician. He's a comedian musician. He's always doing crazy things with music. And so I'm listening to this symphony being played, and one part of the orchestra is going faster than the other. And as I'm listening to it, it felt like someone took my brain and started ripping it in half because I'm trying to listen to one side of the orchestra with one ear and the other side with the other ear. And it was just like, it was just like a, an earthquake was going on inside my brain. It was just this incredible, I mean, it was just difficult, painful to listen to. 
It was kind of funny and humorous, but, but the, the point is that we need to realize that God has a big picture. He's the orchestra leader. Our job is to play our particular part, and if we do that, we can make beautiful music. And so our job is, is to find out, one of our missions in life is to find out what God's plan is and what part we can play in it. Now, that doesn't mean we'll want to play the part. Um, I never wanted to be dentist, and I was convinced I could never become a dentist. But somehow I became one, and in spite of all my objections, I tried to plead with the Lord and argue with him and reason with him that I couldn't become a dentist, but somehow he overruled me, and so here I am. But I think that's the way it often is, is that God has to, we have to set our own plans apart. Now, the fourth assumption that I made is God has in the past, he is now, and will in the future guide and instruct us step-by-step to reveal his purpose to us on a day-by-day basis. In other words, he will reveal his plan to us. And Corrie ten Boom tells this story about when she was a little girl. Now, if you remember who Corrie ten Boom was, she lived in Holland during the World War II, and her father and her family were hiding Jews in their home. It's this, they wrote a book about it called The Hiding Place, and it's an incredible, incredible book because they were defying the Germans right under their nose. And eventually, most of them paid with their lives, except for her, and somehow she escaped or survived being imprisoned. She was the only member of her family that came out alive. But she tells this story about, about God's instruction. And her sister was in the prison camp with her. Her sister became very sick. And her sister, realizing that her death was near, turned to Corey and said, Corey, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to me? And Corey said, I don't know. But she said, remember when we, we were little girls and we would get on the train? Father would take us on a train ride, and we each had to have our ticket to give it to the conductor. When did he give us the tickets? And she said, just before we got on the plane, on the train. And why? Because if he gave it to us a week early, we were little girls and we'd lose them. So he gave us the ticket just as we are getting on the train. And that's the way God often instructs us. He gives us the information, the guidance we need just when we need it. Because if he gives it to us early, we'll forget it, we'll lose it, will somehow uh, it won't will just it won't work out. So he has to he guides us on a day by day basis. Now that's not to say that we won't have difficulties and troubles along the way. We will have many because this world is filled with sin on, on in every dimension, in our families, out of our families, in our workplace. I've resigned a couple jobs because I had really difficult managers. I thought if I can just get away from this manager, my life would be so much easier. So I'd resign the job, and I'd go get another job working somewhere else, and I'd have a new manager. 
that was worse than the one before. And after I did that about two or three times, I realized you're not going to get away from it. In this life, you will have trouble. And so we just have to somehow pray and ask for wisdom and strength to get through it all. And we, we all have troubles. I, one of the things, when we were in the mission field working as, as a dentist and a nurse, we had a little more time to talk to our patients. It's not like the doctors today where you have, you have 10 minutes to spend with your patient and you can hardly talk to them. But we used to spend sometimes 10 minutes just talking to the patients. And what surprised me was that you ask people how they're doing and they say, I'm fine. And then you talk to them and they tell you, you talk to them a little more and they'll tell you, oh, my son's in prison. My husband has cancer. I mean, it's this, there's lots of problems out there. And there's hardly anyone who doesn't have really serious problems, really serious. And if they don't now, they will in five years. I mean, if you get married, eventually one of you is going to get sick. One of you is going to have problems. And it's just, it seems like a part of life that we have problems. But I still believe, I still, that God loves us. And he never intended these terrible things to happen. But he still cares for us and loves us. And he still blesses us. Um, so that's my fifth assumption. The sixth is that he protects us. He often protects us. I think that things would be much worse, would have been much, much worse if he wasn't constantly protecting us. Even when I drive through the streets of Crestline, I see people walking through the street who are homeless, who are down and out. Their clothes are ragged and dirty. They have nowhere to go. And, you know, but for the grace of God, there go I. It's all, I believe it's only God's love and protection that prevents me from being a homeless person. I think if it weren't for the grace of God, I could have easily have been there. I mean, my best friend, when I was in high school, we both went to Vietnam together. He stepped on a landmine, took off half of his foot. He was in a lot of pain, more emotional than physical when he got back, started using heroin, ended up in Cook County Jail. You know, I could have easily ended up like that. And his life kind of went downhill from there. So I think God constantly protects us and blesses us. And so what does he ask of us? What does the Lord require of you but to love justice and to seek mercy? Just as he loves us, well, I wrote it this way. He wants us to protect others. He wants us to bless others. He wants us to guide others, to help them see that God has a purpose for their lives and pl a plan for their lives and that most of all, that he loves them. Now, I work with students and they get discouraged because we pile requirements and examinations and proficiencies and competency examinations. We've, we've gotten into this assessment mode and we are constantly assessing them. We assess them like four or five times a day. 
It takes an incredible amount of time. I spend about two hours of my day just grading students. Now, when I was in school, I would do a procedure, and the instructor would come over, he'd look at it and goes, okay, not bad, I'll give you a four out of five. And that was it. I mean, it took, you know, five seconds, and they were done. And I spent two, and he may be actual grading, he might have spent half an hour a day grading. And I spend two hours a day grading, and sometimes I have to stay past 5 o'clock till 6. I've been there till 7 at night trying to help students with their paperwork and their grading. It's just gotten to be worse, and it's going to get even worse in the days ahead. And I think it's much worse for physicians. I feel sorry for doctors now because there's so, and nurses, there's so much paperwork. But God does have a plan for us, and he wants us to encourage others. I spend a lot of my time encouraging the students. They get discouraged. They want to quit. I was walking home one day, and there was another student walking in the same direction, and I said, how are you? And I said, they said, terrible. I think I'm going to quit. I want to resign from school. I'm going to quit dental school. I said, why? And she said, I've been here all summer, and I haven't done anything because I don't have any patients to work on. They've changed the way they assign patients, and I've just been sitting here twiddling my thumbs, and I'm paying $20,000 a quarter to go to school here, and I haven't done anything all summer. If I keep on like this, I'll never graduate. And so she didn't, she, and I looked into it, and she didn't have any patients. Through some snafu, the, what had happened is the clinic director had gotten a letter from a patient saying that you don't care about poor people. You don't take care of poor people. You're not helping them. You're not doing anything for them. And so the, the clinic director got upset, and he said, something's wrong with the way we're working. I'm not going to assign any new patients till we figure out why we're getting letters like this. What's going on? So he wasn't assigning any patients to anybody because he was spending all of his time trying to. And so there was this back. We had a backlog of 2,000 patients wanting to be seen, and they weren't going through the, through the funnel. And so the next day, after talking to this, this dental student, I went in and talked to the secretaries and said, this student needs some patients. And they gave her four patients right that morning to work on. But it's like we had to intervene. And our life is a constant process of intervening to try to help other people and doing things and violating. I mean, I went over the clinic director's head and said, we're going to give this student some patients to work on. And the clinic director, I'm told, hates me. He can't stand the sight of me because I don't follow his instructions. Okay? And, uh, and sometimes, you know, but there's, there's guiding principles that we have to follow, and then there's procedures, rules, and protocols. And I don't follow those sometimes. I follow the principles, and I get into trouble for that. And I've had, I've, I've told you this many times, I've had three department chairmen go to the dean and say, we have to fire Dr. Trott because he's not following our protocol. And the dean goes, over my dead body. So because he knows what I'm trying to do. Now, I don't know how much longer he'll be able to protect me, but <laughs> he's doing it so far. So God wants us to, 
protect others, to bless them, and to encourage them. And if I could summarize what patients need more than anything else today is encouragement. That's what the patients really need. They need someone to give them hope. They come in and they're sick. And I tell this to the students. I go, if you are working on a patient and you put up their x-rays and you look at their x-rays and go, You know, what is the patient going to think? They're going to think, and they see the expression on your face, and you look like, oh, this looks terrible, you know. The patients think, I'm going to die. <laughs> There's no hope for me. I better make out a will, put my affairs in order. You know, I said, when you're working on a patient, you have to smile and look happy and look hopeful because they're looking at your expression, and if you look discouraged or are shocked or something, they're going to interpret that in the worst possible way. So you've got to look, you've got to smile. And we have, st we have students at the school that smile naturally, and they have the best results with their patients because their patients, they see the doctor smiling and they think, oh, it can't be too bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably going to be okay. The doctor looks happy, you know. But it's really important to look cheerful and happy. Now, that's not easy for some of us. Why are you looking at me like that? <laughs> I mean, some of us are not naturally, you know, always cheerful. And I can be, re well, anyway, I won't go there. But, um, you know, we, sometimes we have to really try and ask God's help to help us to be cheerful. I mean, who wants to... I mean, imagine going up to someone and with a frown on your face and you look really dejected and then you say, God loves you. Who's going to believe you? You know? <laughs> you know, if you're not radiating the love of God to others, no one's going to believe it, that it's true because we are his witnesses. We have to reflect that. And it's really, really hard sometimes because we've all been through trials. I mean, I, I was in Vietnam um, when I was in Vietnam, I, my fellow soldiers tried to kill my, kill my platoon sergeant. They put hand grenades under his bunk. I mean, there are all kinds of horrible, horrible things going on all the time. And, I mean, I've crash-landed in helicopters, walked through minefields, um, seen my friends disgraced, dishonored, some of them killed. And, it, you know, you go through these things and you kind of start losing hope. You start wondering, does God really love us when you have to go through trials like this? But we have to, re as an assumption, believe that he loves us and that through all this sorrow, see a blessing, see blessings in it. I mean, even, I think God protects us even, and it, things would have been much worse if he wasn't protecting us. I remember when I was in Vietnam, well, let me tell you a little story. As a, as a former soldier, I like to study the history of World War II and World War I, and I read about famous soldiers, and I was reading about famous snipers of World War I and II. And they had the 10 most famous snipers, and they told their story. And most of them, these are men that have killed 50, 100. One sniper supposedly killed 500 enemy soldiers, a Russian sniper. And when you read about their their lives afterwards, most of them 
experienced traumatic, uh, what do they call it, post-traumatic shock syndrome. They became alcoholics. They couldn't keep jobs. They went through horrible, horrible experiences, divorces. These guys had a really hard time because, and now my theory is, is that when you kill that many people, it leaves scars on your heart. It really affects you. And I look back, I mean, when I was in Vietnam, I was on guard duty one day, and I had three weapons with me. I had a machine gun, uh, a handgun, and the regular rifle that they give us, and I had a blanket, and I took all three guns apart, and I was cleaning them all simultaneously. Now, that was really stupid. <laughs> I mean, how stupid can you be? And as I was, I had all these weapons disassembled, and it would take me at least five or ten minutes to put them back together. You're supposed to be able to field strip them and put them, take them apart and put them back together again in two minutes, you know. But I couldn't do that. I mean, it would take me, now where does this part go? <laughs> so anyway, there was no way I could get these back together in a reasonable amount of time. And just then, somebody walked up to the fence and started tearing the fence down on our perimeter. And here I was completely defenseless. And so the only thing I could do was just go, stop, go back, don't, you know, don't do that. And, you know, I was yelling at the guy, and, and he finally kind of turned around dejectedly and walked away. And I was watching him, and he was, he was herding some oxen or uh, water buffalo. They use water buffalo to plow there. And the, there's, they're huge animals. And I realized this guy was a farmer. And I thought, we're on his land here. Because he kept looking at the, at the land. And he actually reached down and he picked up a clump of dirt. And he kind of crumpled it in his hands like farmers do when they're testing the soil for planting. I said, he's a farmer. Now, I went back for lunch. I sat down with my, my comrades, my fellow soldiers, and I told them what had happened. And they told me, you mean, you mean you had a chance to shoot a gook and you didn't do it? And they all were so upset with me, they picked their trays up and they walked away and nobody would sit with me, nobody would eat with me after that because they thought I was a traitor. And the story got to the first lieutenant of our platoon and he came over to find out what was going on and I told him what had happened. I didn't tell him I had all my weapons apart. <laughs> didn't want to get court-martialed, but um, I told him what had happened and he goes, I think you did the right thing. Just ignore those guys. And I think even in dire circumstances, God still protects us. And I think God protected me that day. He somehow inspired me to take all these weapons apart. Now, if I would shot that guy, how could I, you know, look at myself in the mirror after that? I think that I would have carried that scar with me for the rest of my life. So when, and so I think that even in, even in any situation we find ourselves in, the Lord protects us. Now, I want to go back to these guiding assumptions what I believe is a Seventh-day Adventist, and I hope you believe some of these about God loving us and having a plan for his life. And I want to give you a one-word summary of all these assumptions. I'm going to put this in a nutshell. 
that one word summary is this word, Christ. Christ implements, carries out, fulfills, reifies all these assumptions. Christ is the best example of and the personification of God's love for us. Now, much more about Christ needs to be said than I can say here. And you can read that in Desire of Ages or in the Bible and lots of other places. Now, beyond that, he, you know, what does the Lord require of us? He wants us to become his disciples. Each and every one of us is a disciple of Christ. And how does he disciple us? How does he prepare us for the work he has? Well, he starts, he forgives us. He shows mercy to us. He extends grace to us. What's grace? Unmerited favor. And the hopes that we will repent and follow him with all of our hearts. Now, it's not like he says, convert or die. Either you be join our church or we're going to shoot you. Because that's not love. That's fear. But he's hoping that we'll be so grateful for his love and his mercy that we'll follow, we'll be grateful. What's the test of faith? Now, I think the, every theologian might give you a different answer, but I think the real test of faith is gratitude. If you're grateful for God's blessing, I think that's bona fide evidence that you have accepted the grace of God. When you, when you reflect it in a life of, of grateful service to others, that's, the, that's, I think, one test for faith. If we are willing to repent, to accept his grace, to be grateful for it, he disciples us, teaches us, instructs us, trains us, mentors us, and provides us with learning opportunities so that we can grow in our faith. Now, how do you become a mountain climber? You stand at the bottom of a big mountain, and one step at a time, you go up the mountain. And it's going to get cold and freezing rain and snow and avalanches and all sorts of exciting adventures along the way. But you're not a mountain climber until you've gone up the mountain. You're just not. And that's the way life is. Each of us has our own mountain to climb. Like going to medical school. That's a mountain to climb. So you go to college for four years. And then you go to medical school for four years. You do a year's internship. And then you do a three-year residency somewhere. I used to work for a neurosurgeon. And one day he said, Jim, you know, at that time, the neurosurgery residency was, I think, four years, five years, something like that. He goes, Jim, I'm thinking about making the residency for neurosurgery 11 years. What do you think about that? <laughs> and I, I said, well, uh, Dr. Austin, are you going to have a retirement plan in your residency <laughs> program? <laughs> so he didn't do that. But <laughs> I mean... Becoming a doctor is a real ordeal. Becoming a nurse, whatever profession you enter in, is really difficult. It takes, I think they say, it takes 
20,000 hours before you get to the level of competency in your profession. You have to practice it for 20,000 hours. Now, if we work 2,000 hours a year, which is if you work full-time every available day, that's going to take you at least 10 years before you're reasonably competent in your profession. They say never trust a young wine or a young doctor. I've heard that said before. <laughs> but, I mean, there are some really good young doctors. But it takes a long time to master our profession. But it's a battle. It's, it's a mountain climb. It's a mountain climbing experience. And we all have to go through it. There's no other way. Now, what's the result of this process of discipleship? As we have to climb this mountain. He helps us to see, eventually... When you're on top of the mountain, you can see the big picture. You've got the bird's eye view. The world looks different from on top of Mount Everest than it does at the bottom. And so when you get to the top, the world looks very different. He helps us to see the big picture. And if you want more on that, read The Great Controversy. That'll kind of help prepare you for the vision you're going to have. He gives purpose to our steps. I mean, I was talking to a dental student two days ago, three days ago, and they said, they were really discouraged. And they said, I, I just don't, I wake up in the morning and I just don't feel like, I just have to force myself to get out of bed. And I sat down and I talked with them and I tried to encourage them and I told them, you're going to be a really good doctor someday. I have a lot of confidence in you. And I have to do that a lot with lots of the students. They're discouraged. They're disheartened. They feel like they just can't do it. And I have to sit down with them and tell them, I think, and I'll kind of end my little speech to them. I said, now who's going to be the, when you, when you finish here, who's going to be the best doctor in the world? And they go, I don't know. Not me. And I said, yes, you. You are going to be the best doctor in the world. For every patient that you care for, you will be the best doctor. No one else is going to help them the way you do. No one else is going to pray with them. No one else is going to get the divine guidance that you will get by praying. And no one else is going to be to help them. And I, sometimes I say, I speak from personal experience. I've had many patients who've gone to a dozen other doctors and no one could help them. And when you hear that, I get scared. When a patient says, well, I've been to 12 other doctors and nobody could help me, I kind of go, oh, Lord, <laughs> who am I? <laughs> you know, I'm not any better than any of these other doctors. Show me what's wrong. And I'll start praying and the Lord will suddenly put a thought into my mind and I'll ask the patient a question and that will unlock the mystery of what's wrong. One question, and suddenly the whole problem begins to come, to come together and you realize what the solution is. And, that is. and when that happens, I go home at the end of the day, and I'm just going, oh, yes, thank you, Lord. Oh, thank you for doing this. And, but it's not easy when you have to do this, because sometimes I'll spend 
I had a patient I spent an hour and a half with unraveling. They had had a problem. They'd had an infection for two years that had gone undiagnosed. It didn't show up on the x-rays. It couldn't be seen by doing a physical exam. But the Lord told me this patient has a, an infection. The Lord showed me where it was, and I did, I did a diagnostic test I'd never done before. At the spot where I thought the infection was, and there was no evidence that there was an infection there, I took a probe and I pushed it through the patient's skin. You know, ow. But the patient didn't say ow because there was no sensation there because it had, had burst and healed. And there are a couple times, this is back in the back of the mouth where you can't really see what's going on. I put the probe through and suddenly pus starts draining out. There was no swelling, there was no inflammation, there was nothing. But somehow, something told me there was an infection there. And we found the infection. Patient goes, how did you find that? And what, do you, what can you say? You know, you know it's the Lord, the Lord guides and shows us where these things are. So God guides us each step of the way. I want each and every one of you to be hopeful. And beyond that, I want you to be confident that God is going to guide you through every difficulty. And in closing, now I'm going to get to my sermon. This was just the introduction, but anyway, I'll, I'll close with this one, one passage. Actually, we read it, and Mala read it. The Lord says to Abraham, it's in Genesis 6. I'm sorry, Gen it was Genesis, which chapter? 15, Genesis 15. Let's go there. Okay. The Lord said, now we're all afraid. I mean, I get up in the morning and I'm fearful. Am I going to have a job at the end of the day? What's going to happen? I mean, there's all sorts of things we worry about. So we're all filled with fear. But listen to what the Lord says. The Lord's talking to Abraham and says, do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham, of course, argues with God as we always do. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit me is Eliezer of Damascus. So in other words, he's got things that he's worried about. But eventually, Abraham believes the Lord. And in verse 6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord credited to him as righteousness. So what is righteousness as the Bible defines it? It's believing that the Lord is your shield and your very great reward. If you believe that, you're righteous, okay? And so you're righteous before God. So I want each and every one of you, I'm hoping and praying that each and every one of you will believe that God is guiding your life. He will answer your prayers and he will give you the insights, the instructions, the perceptions you need to solve the problems that you will face in the days ahead. That's not to say there won't be sorrow and suffering, there will but God will give you 
each and every one of you divine blessings to make it through these problems. And even when the day comes, when your journey is over and there's no more battles to be fought, he'll be there on the other side.